0: that today we've only got 15 verses. But even still, when there's only 15 verses, I can guarantee I'm not going to have time to touch on all of the details that you may have questions about. Uh, so if if you do have questions about some things that I do say because you don't agree with them or if you thought I didn't have opportunity to expand or explain something, then please do um, either have a chat to me afterwards or give me a call or send an email and happy to follow through on that. Let's come before God in prayer as we look at this passage this morning, which um, yeah, people have had various views over for many years and will continue to until Jesus returns. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Our Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by the word of your truth this morning. Lord, even though we're looking at a part of the book of Revelation, which has um, at times caused division and controversy in church over different understandings and interpretations, uh, Lord, we pray that that there would be none of that here in our midst this morning. Uh, But Lord, that we would rejoice in Jesus Christ, who is at the very heart and centre of the entirety of this book. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand and to you know the blessing of not only hearing your word, uh, but putting it into practice as you have promised at the beginning of these, uh, this letter to these seven churches. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a lot of you will know that I'm a bit of an overly excessive travel planner. It's not unusual for me to be organised holidays and things up to 12 months in advance. I usually... Just kind of wait for sales and then I just book based on when things are just really cheap to do so. But this approach divides people. Even when I do premarital counselling, I notice that it comes up. Often you'll find one of them is extremely hyper organised and stresses out when things aren't organised, and the other one just kind of relaxed and likes the adventure or the thrill of just going with the flow. I see some giggles over there, knowing a couple that I'm currently doing that with. But the thing is, no matter how busy a city is, no matter how popular a particular hotel is, I know with absolute certainty when I walk into reception there, I'm going to have a room. They're not going to say to me, Steve, we've got no more rooms left. Now, often when I'm checking in, there'll be some of these thrill-seekers, adventurer people, leaving it all at the last minute, who will be told, sorry, we don't have any rooms left. Why did they say that to those people? Now, i bought it at a really cheap, stingy price, most likely, and they're probably willing to pay way more than I did. They're probably even nicer than I am. But why am I confident that I will get that room? Because it's my name it's on that record. It's my name that they have in their computer system. And because my name is on their records, every time I walk into a hotel lobby, I have zero fear that they're going to say, sorry, we have no room for you. Now, as we look at Revelation chapter 20 today, we'll be re- reminded that every single one of us falls into one of two camps. The writer to the Hebrews says, it is a point for man to die once and then face judgment. That's a reality for every single person born. Everyone will die just once, then all of us will stand before God in judgment. And much like the hotel scenario, for some of us, it'll be the receiving of everything we've hoped for, what we're confidently standing upon because we know our name is written in the book of life. Or it should be, as we see things described this morning, something which should invoke a sense of fear, but not a sense of fear as then, well, that's my lot, that's where I'm going, but a fear that should drive us to think, I need to be prepared for that today, and now is that time to be prepared. In a couple of weeks, we'll begin to look at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, which gives us a glorious and wonderful picture of what that eternity will look like for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, if you've ever been pondering in your mind, wonder what it would be like to live with Jesus for all eternity. We'll be doing that over a couple of weeks, starting in two weeks' time. But before we talk about the content of chapter 20, we need to acknowledge that this is a chapter that's divided Christians. This is a chapter which people have various different opinions on, and not just between solid Bible believers and heretics, but between solid, biblically sound, evangelical people, there are a diverse range of approaches to this chapter. And primarily, the main question is, how does chapter 20 relate to chapter 19? Samuel preached through chapters 17 through to 19 last week. And everyone's agreed that chapter 19 describes the second coming of Jesus. The question that divides people is, does chapter 20 describe events which happen after the events of chapter 19, Or is this another example like we've seen throughout the book of Revelation where John comes and retells things that he's already told again from another angle with a different distinct focus? You've probably guessed by the way we've gone through the book so far that I'm more convinced of that second option. That this is not describing events which happen after the events of chapter 19 and we'll explain why I'm not convinced of that in a moment. But in saying that, I acknowledge there we some people in this room who have a very different approach to this chapter. And you know what? That doesn't really concern me. As I said, there's, I know many people have very different views than me on this that I have a lot of respect for. But if you and I agree that Jesus is returning, we need to be ready, we need to proclaim the gospel, I don't mind if we disagree about some of the details about the timing and the order of things. This isn't a central core gospel issue as to the timing as to when Jesus returns and where that fits with regards to this uh, thousand-year reign. Eastgate as a church doesn't even have a set position on that. Next week we'll be looking at those four different main approaches and the strengths and weaknesses that each of those have. But today, as we look through Revelation chapter 20, this is where we're going. We're looking at this millennial, the 1,000 year reign of Jesus in verses 1 to 6. And I should preface by saying that 90% of what we're looking at will be on these six verses, because these are the verses that get discussed the most. And that's just a warning so that if you think, man, it's taken this long to get to verse 6, we're going to be here all day. The defeat of Satan in verses 7 to 10 And final judgment for all in verses 11 to 15. These six verses, these are at the core and the centre of the disputes that people have had throughout all of Christian history. Everyone agrees that chapter 19 describes the return of Jesus Christ. Everyone agrees that chapter 20 describes a time in which Jesus Christ will reign along with saints. But there are predominantly three areas in which people have differing views are these things described in Revelation chapter 20 future, even future to us or do they describe things that are happening now? Should we think of them as a literal 1,000 year period by which you could set a stopwatch by or is it a symbolic use of numbers as many of the other numbers throughout the book of Revelation has been Is this reign or this kingdom something which happens on this earth or is it something which happens from heaven? So there are three different things that are very different which solid evangelical Christians have differing views upon. Now, I could hold you in suspense and kind of just gradually go there, but what I thought would be more helpful, if I just lay all the cards on the table, give you that initial shock if you've come from a different background, and then explain why I've landed with that particular position. I would say this reign of a thousand years of Jesus Christ that is spoken of here, along with his saints, is his reign from heaven all of the time from Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he is reigning now all the way through till the time when he returns. Now, if you're hearing that, depending on the backgrounds you've come from, some of you will be thinking, yeah, of course it is. There's no other way to understand it, is there? And others will hear that exact same thing and think, that Steve's on crack. Where does he get this idea? But before we even talk about all the ways different approaches people have had, which we'll do next week, I think the first important thing to me to explain is, why I don't believe chapter 20 describes events that come after the events of chapter 19. Two minor points first. The first one is Revelation has got lots of sets of sevens. If this is a retelling, this would complete a series of seven retellings in the book of Revelation. Interesting, but far from a defining point most of the things that we read in Revelation chapter 20, we can find an identical description of events in previous chapters of Revelation. But the biggest reason why I don't believe chapter 20 describes events which happen after the events of chapter 19 is the contents of chapter 19 and 20 themselves. And chapter 19, which Samuel looked at last week, describes Jesus coming as a rider on a white horse... Treading out the wine purse of the fury of God's wrath in chapter 19, verse 15. It's describing the complete destruction of all of the enemies of Jesus Christ and his church. If you see something of the comprehensive nature of it in verses 17 to 18, then I saw an angel standing in in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. That sounds pretty comprehensive in the destruction of the enemies of Jesus, doesn't it? Kings, captains, mighty men. Where Your translation, most of them say all men. The word men's not actually in the Greek. It just says and all, small and great, slave or free, I don't think there's any enemies left. And if you thought that wasn't comprehensive enough, you add to that verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and the birds were gorged with their flesh. So as I read chapter 19, every single enemy of Jesus Christ and his church is destroyed. And if I've rightly understood chapter 19, chapter 20 can't describe events happen straight afterwards because that would make no sense. John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So in Revelation 20, it describes a time when Satan is bound. It's not a universal bound. It says very specifically to what extent he's bound. It says he is bound specifically in the area that he may not deceive the nations any longer. Now if it's during this reign of Jesus Christ is between his first and second coming would that not be the period where we see the gospel going to all nations? In the Old Testament it's predominantly the people of Israel with some exceptions of Gentiles coming into the community of God's people but as Jesus Christ conquered Satan on the cross we see the gospel going to all nations It's a true statement and it's probably hinted in what's being said here but that's not the key reason that John says that Satan was bound. When you read through verses 7 to 10 it specifically says after these thousand years Satan is released that restraint is taken off him he deceives the nations that they would gather together and launch a global assault against the church. So if chapter 19, or if chapter 20 is to follow the events of chapter 19, saying that Satan needs to be prevented from getting the enemies of Christ to launch a global attack on the church, if all of the enemies of Christ have been destroyed in chapter 19, who's going to launch an attack against the church? Who could he deceive? Although if, on the other hand, Revelation is a retelling, it makes sense. Satan is defeated on the cross, we see the gospel going out to all nations. They're no longer blinded. We see the mission given to Paul that he's given to take the gospel to open the eyes of the Gentiles. And because during this time between Jesus' first and second coming, this is why we do not see Satan organise a global assault to bring about the intended destruction of the church. However, it does mean we should expect before the return of Christ that Satan will be behind a global, worldwide attack in an attempt to destroy the church. Now, when I used to hold a different view than the one I hold today, it wasn't because I had issue with a thousand years, thinking, well, more than a thousand years have passed since Jesus was first here. I was okay with symbolic use of numbers, The thing that was really a stumbling block to me was thinking, Satan is bound? Satan's not bound. We see his activity in the world all today. But then as I read through Revelation 20, we see it's very clearly articulated. He's not bound so he can do nothing. It doesn't say he's bound so that he can't attack Christians or he can't be behind evil rulers and things like that. It specifically says he is bound for this time specifically so that he cannot deceive the nations to bring them together in launching a global war and attack against the church. So who is reigning with Jesus? Verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God And those who had not worshipped the beast and its image, for it had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So John sees thrones. There's probably more references to thrones in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible. But all of the thrones that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation are located in heaven. And there's nothing, as I understand it, in Revelation 20 to indicate this here is an exception. And the ones sitting on these thrones are those with authority to judge which it tells us are those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God and all those who have not worshipped the beast and borne its mark. In other words, all Christians. And it says these souls, that's an important reference, these souls came to life and reigned with Christ. The concept of ruling and reigning with Christ is something Jesus has already promised to the first century churches to which these seven letters were written, to Thyatira and Laodicea in chapters 2 and 3. To use the example to the church in Laodicea, it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down on my throne with my father on his throne. He says, if you conquer, if you endure in faith, then when you die, you will be granted to reign on thrones with me. But what does it mean they came to life? Bodily resurrection? They were consciously aware in a spiritual sense? Well, the Bible speaks only of one bodily resurrection at the return of Jesus Christ and also when Paul speaks about the nature of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 he says when the imperishable puts on sorry when the perishable puts on the imperishable he says the imperishable that is the eternal state can never coexist with the perishable he says, not possible. In chapter 15, verse 26 of First Corinthians, Paul says, the perishable will put on the imperishable, as in we will receive our resurrection bodies when that last enemy is defeated and that enemy is death. Which we'll see, it's not till later in chapter 20 that death is thrown into the lake of fire and that last enemy is defeated. So if we're not talking about a bodily resurrection, what do we think of these first and second resurrections spoken of in this chapter? These souls of the beheaded for the sake of the testimony of Christ and the word of God, they've been described back in chapter 6. When he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for witness they had borne. There they cried out, saying, God, how long until you vindicate for the things that have been done against us. And there they are in the very presence of God, alive in a conscious sense as as their souls, and they're told, you must wait until all who must be martyred have come in. So what's this first resurrection they've experienced? One thing we do know from verse 6, if you've received the first resurrection... You're not going to have the second death. Those who shared in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. What's interesting in those verses is, in the Greek it says those who share presently, those who are sharing in the first resurrection, the second death will have no power. So it's talking about something that people are presently experiencing. Luckily, you don't need to scratch your head and think, what's this second death? This chapter actually says, and they were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death. Speaking of the eternal death for those who are outside of Christ. What thing you'll notice between these references to our first death, second death, first resurrection and second resurrection is that the first things describe something which is temporary. The second thing describes something which is eternal. For example, the first death, just speaking of our natural death of our human bodies, the first resurrection, as has been experienced by these, those who have died in Christ, whose souls are there reigning alongside with Christ. That's not their permanent state, their temporary state. And a second death, which we've seen is their eternal death, thrown into the lake of fire. And the second resurrection is that bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. But even though Christians may be persecuted and killed, it says if you are sharing in that first resurrection, second death cannot, will not ever touch you. That was promised back in chapter 2 where he's told, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be conquered by the second death. So let me assure you this. If you are in Christ, the closest you will ever have an experience of the second death is what you're reading about here in chapter 20 of Revelation. Some of these complicated six verses... I don't see it as being a stopwatch 1,000 years. So it's been symbolic like most of the numbers are throughout the book of Revelation, describing Christ's reign as Peter proclaimed at Acts at Pentecost when he says, one would sit on the throne of David forever. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he will reign with his saints and through his church. Until he returns. But right towards the end of that period, it says that restraint will be lifted from Satan, which we'll see in verses 7 to 10. And as soon as that restraint is lifted off him, that he might deceive the nations. That's exactly what he does. He deceives the nations, gathering them into a global assault, a global war against Christ and his church. It's described using imagery from Ezekiel 38 and 39 of Gog and Magog. And there are some who like to think, oh, that must be Russia and Iran. And it's safe to say it includes Russia and Iran, but to say this is speaking of two nations ignores the text itself. Because the the text tells us what Gog and Magog are. It says they'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. That's who Gog and Magog are. The nations from every single corner of the church. It will be global, not two individual nations. This final war is just another retelling. We see it in chapter 11, 16, 17 and 19. All describing a universal attack upon Christ and his church as as enabled by Satan. But here for the first time we see the focus shift to the fate of Satan himself. Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire where he'll be tormented eternally. That might redefine your concept of what you think hell is like. You know how often people think hell will be a place where Satan's having a great party and everyone else is suffering? He's not ruling there in hell. He's being eternally punished in hell. These last verses of chapter 20 speak about the judgment every single one of us will face. Those who've experienced the first resurrection, they've got no fear of the second death. But our judgment, the conclusion of the world as we know it, will come to an end. The text tells us there's no place for the earth or the sky. It's the way Peter describes that the earth and the heavens will be burnt up and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Because at the coming of the Christ, the temporary comes to an end. There is judgment and brings in the eternal. At this judgment, either it will be eternal death or this second death or eternal punishment. Or we will be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be raised in, with imperishable bodies on a new heaven, a new earth with God. At this judgment, books were opened where everyone is judged for the things for which they have done. But the distinguishing mark says, and those whose name were in the book of life. That was what makes the distinction primarily between the two things. Those whose names are in the book of life. And certainly the way in which we live by the things which we've done will be characteristic of whether or not our names are in the book of life. These verses look exactly the way that Paul, sorry, Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 25 31 to 46. It looks very similar to the way Daniel spoke about it in Jan, Daniel chapter 7 9 and 10. Books are open. And it's not going to be like one of those weight scale things where if it's like 51% on the good pile, you're doing all right. Before a perfect and holy God, only Christ and his perfect righteousness will be the very thing that makes you right in his sight. How do you get your name in the Lamb's book of life? Jesus says, whoever believes in me that is, believes in who I am, believes that I am the rightful ruler of this world, the one to who is worthy of all honour and praise. That we, that we say, God, I haven't, I, forgive me, I haven't given you the honour and praise. I have lived in rebellion against you. I want to live underneath your rule. Jesus says, and all who believe in me, I will give eternal life. They have passed now, present tense, from death to life. And I will raise them up. On the last day. As we come to Him in faith, the very righteousness of Christ is given to us. We have confidence to stand before Him. That our name is in that Lamb's Book of Life. That we that's not a day to be feared, but a day when we are awaiting the completion of our salvation. Now we spent most of our time on verses one to six. Because they're the bits that everyone's got all the questions about. They're the highly speculated bits and probably still we've got questions that we didn't touch on or questions that need to be asked about things that have been said. We may not have agreed on how we understand them. But guess what? On that last day, you're not going to stand before God and he's not going to give you an exam. Okay, you tell me about Revelation 21 to 6. That's not the point by which you enter Into your eternal rest with him. Your eternal dwelling, your eternal condition is a matter of is your name in the Lamb's book of life or not? And guess what? It's not a VIP elitist list, it's not a VIP elitist book. In fact, every single name that's in that book is a sinner. Because to get in that book, you need to have acknowledged that you are a sinner. Only a sinner calls upon the Saviour to be saved. What sets them apart isn't that they weren't a sinner. What sets them apart is they recognised they were a sinner and they were thankful that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He bore their punishment for their sin and they have received his righteousness. Marcus, as has received his spirit to live for him. Or to use the language of John from the first chapter, they are sharing in the tribulation the kingdom with patient endurance. What we've seen described as the eternity for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemies. In fact, the things we're going to look at in a couple of weeks in chapters 21 and 22 That's what I actually want. And that's what we should want for our worst enemies. We should want them to see and experience the joy and the blessing of an eternity with Christ. And if you haven't yet turned to Jesus, can I call on, can I appeal to you to trust him? Not just because I don't want you to have a bad eternity, which is, I certainly don't, but because I want you to know the Saviour who made you and who loves you. Now, if you already are trusting Jesus, when you read through a chapter like this, you can't help but say, wow, such is the measure by which I have been saved, that this is what I've been it's been described of where I was headed, yet I've been plucked out of that. I don't need to fear for even a moment of this second death. Remember that old hymn that had the refrain at the end of the, of the chorus? Hallelujah, what a saviour. Now, if this brings you joy, to think what we're going to look at in chapters 21 and 22, I can't wait for that. Can I encourage you? Can I challenge you? to make it your regular habit to be praying for three people who don't know Jesus, that you know, that you will commit to pray for every single day, that they might come a step closer and closer to eventually trust in Jesus. I think it will do you good in two ways. It will constantly keep before your own mind what it is that you've been saved from. And it will constantly keep in your own mind what it is that Christ has called you to. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that these were is a difficult chapter and I'm sure we've raised just as many questions as we have answered questions. Lord, we pray that this would not unsettle or, or trouble anyone. But Lord, that if there are questions or things that need to be discussed, that they uh, would be had as as brothers and sisters gathered around your word realizing that we will not stand before you confidently because of our understanding of these verses but purely because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to those who are trusting in him though we long to to be with you and then we will know exactly how we should or shouldn't have understood these verses Uh, so lord help us not to get caught up with the things that we can't yet know in their entirety now but thank you that you promise that when we see you we will know exactly to the same extent to which you know us and we thank you for that in jesus name amen